0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to FT Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and I
1: am back. You're back.
0: I'm, I'm back. I'm-, I'm here with Shannon Bond, co-host. Shannon, how are you?
1: I'm great. How was your trip?
0: Uh, it was a terrific trip. And to be honest... You and Amy did such an amazing job of helming the podcast while I was gone. I'm not just blowing smoke up your butt. I mean that genuinely, that it's not altogether clear to me that I shouldn't have just stayed away.
1: You also just might have wanted to stay at the beach.
0: Yeah, no, I I, <laughs> I, had an, I didn't actually go to the beach while I was in Cuba. Uh, I had a really good time though. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but the podcast was great. I thought for me, the highlight was your conversation with Sherry Turkle, which was terrific. But it was I, super fun. It was yeah. really
1: interesting. I, I'm trying. I, I feel like I've I feel like I had like a good week of uh, giving myself some distance from my cell phone, and it's all gone away of now.
0: Separating yourself. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a serious question though. We're coming to the end of the year. This is for both of us. Our first time hosting uh, a brand new podcast. What did you learn about being in the saddle?
1: So what, my sort of favorite experience of doing this has been. Like the, I mean, I'm a journalist. I like to talk to people. I like to talk to the people in our office, like our other our colleagues, about the stories they're working on, and sort of seeing there are certain people who are just really good at talking about subjects that might not, you know, at first blush seem really exciting. Yeah, or, or they're
0: complicated. Or, or, or they're complicated
1: things like pharma deals, things like the markets, and we just it's it's awesome. We are surrounded by awesome, really smart people who are good at telling you like why it really matters, bringing out the characters, like right. bringing out what makes it interesting. And so it's been really fun. To sort of see that and see a bit outside my sector,
0: right. Now, I I did notice a kind of distinctly invigorated interest on your part in uh, like market stories and things like that when I got back. I guess you couldn't avoid them because you know the it has Fed
1: kind of dominated. Right? That has been a big a big story this week this right. year.
0: Right. I, I I should note to our listeners that on this show because we've got such an awesome lineup, we are not talking about how the Fed. Raised rates, except to mention it just that one time that it happened. But there's so many other places where you can look stuff up about this.
1: And we had a great chat about it last week with Eric. Exactly sort of setting it up.
0: Exactly. So in good- I will add, though, I, there is something I've learned about being in this in this seat, which is that the best radio comes not when I'm talking, but when I'm not talking. Right, and that's really interesting for both of us, I think, because the two of us love to talk. Right, and when yeah. you and I have lunch and stuff, like we have to constantly like. Stop each other from talking, <laughs> from one person talking over the other. But actually the ability to suppress your own sort of need or longing or whatever to express yourself mm-hmm. is so important. Talk
1: less, smile more. Exactly. It's really hard.
0: Talk less, smile more. A quote from Hamilton, which we are going to be talking about on today's show. Okay. Enough blabbering about how awesome it is for me to be back. Uh, let's get to today's lineup. So here's the lineup. First, I recorded a conversation in Cuba with a really amazing woman, a dissident uh, and a journalist named Miriam Leva, And we talk about the life of her late husband, an economist named Oscar Espinosa Chepe. It was pretty awesome. Shannon, what what are we doing after that?
1: We're going to have Gary Silverman, FT's national editor, um, who's going to tell us about a trip he took uh, to Arizona. Uh, which is on the border with Mexico and is currently lobbying for an expansion of a free travel zone that has brought billions of dollars to the local economy. Gary went down um, and heard a bit about what exactly is going on in the context of our very heated national immigration debate.
0: And then, of course, third on the lineup, you've already alluded to it. Hamilton! Hamilton. (laughs) That's going to be great.
1: So Hamilton, the musical that has taken New York and a lot of just the cultural world by storm this year.
0: It's like our favorite thing that's happened this year. Definitely. Uh, So we're going to gush over it for a bit. Everybody stick around. It's great to be back, and this is going to be an awesome show. Yay,
1: Cardiff. All right, so Cardiff, tell me what we're about to listen to, um, which you recorded when you were in Cuba.
0: Okay. uh, The name of the woman I interviewed is Miriam Leva. She's this really awesome lady. Okay. She is a journalist and a dissident. She was one of the dissidents who was arrested Before she could go to meet the Pope, for instance, earlier this year, you might have heard about that. Uh, But there is an economics component to this story. Mm -hmm. She was married to a dissident Cuban economist who throughout his life had this penchant for telling uncomfortable truths. And like her, was severely punished for it. Uh, In the 2000s, he was imprisoned and treated brutally for about a year and a half. He got out and then he kept right on telling the truth. He died a couple of years ago. Uh, But what I love about this story, which is known to people who follow Cuba closely, but not very well known to people in the economics game or in the economics commentating game is that this was an economist who really risked something, right? Most of us who do this for a living, I mean, you could say that we risk our reputation sometimes, but even if we get something wrong, it's usually not that big a deal. This is the story of somebody risked his livelihood and later on his very life. To tell the truth and to say what he saw. It's a really great story. I love this conversation. It is easily my favorite interview of the year. So right. here it is
3: Fidel Castro doesn't forgive and doesn't for, uh, forget. Mm-hmm.
0: That's Miriam Leva speaking to me in her apartment in Havana, Cuba. It's a small place, and we're sitting in her cramped living room. It barely contains the piles and piles of books and notebooks and papers and files scattered everywhere. Plus, there's a few coffee cups and empty cigarette boxes laying around. She's short, and I'm guessing she's in her late 60s, but I don't ask her. And she's really jittery, walking and talking with an abundance of nervous energy. She's a really brave and remarkable woman, an independent journalist and dissident, an advocate for free expression, and an outspoken critic of her government's human rights violations. And she's one of the founders of Damas en Blanco, or the Ladies in White, the famous dissident group here in Cuba started by the wives of political prisoners, though she parted ways with the group a little while ago. And finally, and the reason I'm here, she's the widow of Oscar Espinosa Chepe, the Cuban economist and dissident who was imprisoned in 2003 and treated brutally for his public criticism of Fidel Castro's government. Things didn't start out that way for Oscar. The Cuban Revolution had ushered Fidel Castro into power in 1959, and a half decade later in the mid-1960s, he was a young socialist economist who went to work as an economic advisor to Castro. But very quickly, he became disillusioned, especially as Castro's government increasingly consolidated... Its direct control over more and more of the economy.
3: He was very, you know, it was an honor to work for, with Fidel Castro, and besides, he was uh, very uh, hopeful for the, you know, the revolution, and also he had been a socialist before 1959, and he had been involved in the youth movement, and and he had great hopes, you know, and, and expectation, and he thought he he would do the best, and we would do for our country. Uh, he liquidated or he eliminated the banking system, accountability. The
0: he that Medium is referring to here is Fidel Castro.
3: They started to talk uh, about um, uh, not using money anymore. So Oscar started to to, to talk there and uh, at work and say that he th- thought that it was, this was impossible. He knew something. He had life experience about businesses because his... Uh, but parents were entrepreneurs so so he, he couldn't imagine that situation and and uh,
0: what what specifically uh, did he not like about those early years um, of the Fidel Castro economic plan because you said that he was a socialist before but you think that um, was his complaint that Castro was just way too radical that that, that he was taking over too much of the economy what, what, what was it that he argued against
3: well for instance in 1968. Fidel Castro said, "No more uh, private businesses," but it it, it they had already taken all the big companies and and businesses. And this was, for example, a barber shop or a, a cafeteria or a restaurant. And and Oscar said, "Well, this is impossible." It was not that his family had lost everything. They they had drugstores, they had uh, pharmacies, but it, it he didn't mind, he didn't care, you know. It was that he said, "How could you?" Uh, how could an economy function if you don't if you don't have uh, accounting, if you don't have a, a bank system banking system, if uh, there are no contracts uh, between uh, enterprises, if you have no control you know and besides that, you take the the, 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 the little uh, private business away and this the government is not going to be able to control it and it's going to be a great loss for the economy and that's what he was saying. So he was very criti- much criticized there. And they told Fidel Castro, and Fidel Castro was very upset. So Oscar was punished and sent to work at, in caves and, 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 and in the agriculture. So
0: he's sent to work in caves and agriculture. Yeah. Uh, doing what exactly?
3: Well, in the caves he was uh, getting the bat in- excrement. I don't know how you call that.
0: The bat shit.
3: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then he got you know he got sick there. Maybe he got some. Um, germ or bacteria from the caves so then afterwards he, he had to work in the fields and you never knew how long you would be punished at that time he was always you know he was used to uh, giving his uh, opinion since he was a kid i think so. Yeah. Imagine. so
0: after working well, a he... couple of other odd jobs as punishment uh, oscar's work ethic and talent eventually was recognized within the government's bureaucracy and he was placed in charge of Cuban economic and technological coordination with some of the Soviet bloc countries like Yugoslavia and Hungary. He traveled a lot, but he worked from Cuba. And he met Medium in 1975 when she was working for the Cuban Ministry of Foreign Affairs.
3: Well, I, I was uh, I was working at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in charge of Hungary, and then, well, I met him in a meeting. I, I really didn't, you know. He was just there. I, I I didn't realize who he was. And then we went to a a, a reception at the Hungarian National. Well, at the embassy for the uh, National uh, Day. I don't know. And and well, that was it. Okay. <laughs> then, <laughs> then all every day he would call me, and he would come and and you know to take me home, and and and, and then about. Six months later,
0: we got married. So so both of you, I think, now are known as uh, sort of fairly prominent uh, dissidents, right? People who have argued against certain economic policies and other policies within Cuba. Back then, were the seeds of, like, your future troublemaking already there? Were you already starting to make waves? Or back then, were you more kind of uh, keeping a a low profile and not yet causing trouble?
3: Well, back then, we were still uh, thinking that... uh, well, maybe things went wrong in something, but this could be uh, uh, there could be changes, and in Cuba uh, things can work. And and but you know, as the more we read, we knew, and we traveled, and we we knew what was going on in those so-called socialist countries we our minds you know open and 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 we thought that this cannot be this cannot happen in cuba for oscar there was a, a big uh, shock when he went to north korea eh? when he was working at fidel castro's uh, office he he was in uh, with a delegation in north korea they even met uh, kim il sung and all that and mm-hmm. he was shocked by this country because he, he you know after he thought that the korean Oh, they were so brave and these people, you know, the propaganda here was and what he, he he read when he was a kid. And then when he lived there, he saw how close was that society. Then he went to the Soviet Union and at that same year he went to the Soviet Union and, and, and he saw how, how people lived there. And they, they went through uh, Switzerland and then he saw what was going on in Switzerland and he said, oh, my God, socialist, real socialism is in Switzerland, not in these countries. See, right. that was his first shock. Okay. Well,
0: After they married, Media was told repeatedly that her marriage to Oscar was hindering her career. She says that there were many years when they couldn't be posted abroad because of his earlier criticism of Castro. But eventually they did work for a few years in the 1980s in Yugoslavia. In 1984, Oscar was sent to work at Cuba's National Bank. And several years later, he again ruffled Castro's feathers by truthfully reporting what he saw in Cuba's economy. But things were more serious this time. He was labeled a counter-revolutionary by the government, which is like being called a traitor. Here's how Medium explains it.
3: In Cuba, it means that the state controls or the government controls everything, every item, and they had... Uh, were stores they had enterprises and 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 Oscar would go to uh, all these places to find out uh, how it was going on and, and everything and so he would write he wrote you know this uh, reports on what he saw he wrote or he would talk with his uh, co-workers there and in 1992 he was uh, summoned it was a great meeting, and they told him he was a counter revolutionary because of what he was saying, and that he had to retreat, you know, to, okay. he couldn't do that anymore. And uh, I was... That he
0: couldn't tell the truth about what he saw, that he couldn't write these he, things not he
3: couldn't, he couldn't say okay. anything. He could, this was contra-revolutionary. He right. was un sujeto contra revolutionary, not even a, a person. So, at that time, I traveled a lot. Yeah. And when I, I already knew that he was having some problems at work. And when I came back from a conference in uh, Bali, Indonesia, uh, next day, uh, the, they called me and they said, we're very much concerned because you are married to you have, uh, this uh, high post. A
0: counter-revolutionary.
3: And you're married to this counter-revolutionary. Okay. Well, I said, he's not. And they said, well, th- think it over. I, I asked, well. You think I have to divorce him? Say no, no. That's up to you. So up to me was that there were meetings, some meetings, and I would only—I only spoke in the first meeting. I said he's not a contributionary. he's a Cuban who's saying what he thinks it would be best for our country.
0: I want to add something about this period of time that Medium is describing at the end of the 1980s and early 1990s. Soviet subsidies to Cuba had just ended and the Cuban economy contracted by between a third and a full half. It was an absolutely brutal time that left scars on the psyches of most Cubans that remain even now. Electricity and water didn't work for most of the day. Public transportation in Havana had entirely shut down. People were hitchhiking to work or riding bikes borrowed from the Chinese. Women were literally going blind from nutritional deficiencies because food itself was hard to come by. I'm not exaggerating any of this. And it's in this environment that Oscar is being harassed at his job and Medium is being pressured by the government to divorce him just because he told the truth. So
3: he expressed his opinion. You know, he just couldn't shut up. (laughs) That was the problem. (laughs) Here you had to just say yes, yes, or at least don't talk. But he couldn't.
0: Oscar was reassigned to work at a small bank and Medium eventually lost her own job as a Cuban diplomat. Their friends were afraid to be associated with them, so they also lost touch as the couple became more and more isolated. They started contacting other Cuban dissidents and joined international journalism societies and associations. They scrapped together information wherever they could find it and tried to write articles when they could for foreign publications. But eventually they went about trying to set up their own domestic publication for Cuba. But they only got through two editions before they were effectively shut down.
3: uh, uh, The government used to say that the journalists, uh, uh, you know, were just... mm, Counter revolutionaries who didn't know anything about journalism and so on, so we prepared uh, we organized uh, courses for uh, the journalists. It was a course that it would teach English another lady uh, grammar uh, and and you know uh, journalist techniques I don't know how you call it and then and the police came to the house where we were gathering it was open uh, the, many of the these journalists came there and uh, said that we could not do that, and they started to uh, go after the journalists telling them, if you go there, uh, we will take you to prison. And we stopped. Why? Because our main goal was to publish a magazine. And the government has said that we could not publish a magazine here in Cuba, that they would not allow an independent magazine in Cuba. And we had one December 2002, and we distributed about 3,000 uh, all over the country. Then we had our second... Uh,
0: wait, wait, what was in that magazine?
3: Anything. Uh, for example, I have them here. For example, uh, I don't know. What, I, I was in charge of for uh, foreign uh, international uh, uh, relations, let's say, uh-huh. an Oscar economy. And another one was, uh, I don't know, about... Uh, social problems.
0: Was it written? as was written by you, by Oscar, and by the rest of the people in this society uh-huh, of that's journalists.
3: It. Yes, okay. yes. So and they would making, bring. There yeah. was a, a committee.
0: of, I don't know. Uh, like an editorial. Like, editorial.
3: Uh-huh. They, uh they they would bring the the their work and and it was uh, analyzed or whatever, and then. It was very difficult because we didn't have a uh, computer, we didn't have printer, we didn't have anything. And the government would say, if, uh, and, and the gov- where would we get the money for that? Because the government would say that the Americans were paying us, that we were mercenaries.
0: So we- They had actually received funding from a prize offered by a Spanish journalism organization based in Madrid. A few other dissidents and independent journalists had joined them in trying to set it up. I asked Medium what Oscar himself was writing about in
3: at the general, time. In general, uh, the Cuban economy, the problems that, that there was, uh, the sugar industry it had been the best, uh, one of the uh, best in the world. The Cuban was uh, the main uh, sugar exporter once, and now the sugar industry was a mess. It, 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 people didn't have a maybe people didn't have a, uh, their salaries were too low, um, uh, the Cuban population was uh, aging and and there was no no birth uh, uh, the birth uh, was going right, down the aging all the Cuban had uh, democ- many many Cuban problems what was going on in our society and also what he thought that would be better or improved maybe the government would uh, uh, come with a, a a report on the uh, on the results of the economy that year and then he would Analyze that and say no. That's impossible because of this and that. This would be better that way and that.
0: Okay. Okay. So it's 2002. You get this prize, which gives you just enough money to publish uh, the first edition Uh of this this magazine. Society, not to me. This society, no, not you, but the the society, Uh right, of journalists. Then Uh, what happens?
3: Then what happens is that uh, the second. How do you say number? The second. The second
0: edition. The second
3: edition. was, you know, just coming out <laughs> so then 18th, 19th and 20th of March 2003, all over the country, the, the, the political police came and took these people, the journalists the, the teachers, the doctors, the Berla the, the Project, the, the other uh, organizations, uh, political parties or uh, human rights activists. They were taken to prison mm? and they were sentenced from. Well, I think there was one that got 12 years in prison, but most of them uh, were sentenced to 20 years and even up to 28 years. Mm? And in Oscar's case, he had been ill for many, for a long time, he had a um, Uh, problems in his liver, very serious problems. And the government knew that because they control everything. When we go to the doctors, they they go ask the doctors what was wrong with us, you know? So he he had even been, in 2000, he had been um, in the hospital because he had been very, very sick. So they knew perfectly well his uh, physical conditions. And he was taken to the headquarters of the political police like the others, he was, he, he, he was under very, very tough uh, interrogations. And immediately, he lost a lot of weight. And he, you could see, the, the, uh, for, uh, when we could visit them, it, it was um, once a week or every t- 10 days, 15 minutes with the political police there with us, and we could not get you know, close. And you could see how he was deteriorating. So immediately I started to demand the government to give him uh, medical attention. I got support from uh, abroad from international organizations for even from Nobel Prize uh, economists winners you know uh, and 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 many others it was not only for oscar for all the seventy five but in our case he was already known I had even all the you know the the papers uh, from the hospital what he had suffered before, and I, and it was seen that he, he was in very bad shape. But although it happened, it was like that. He was sent from Havana to Guantanamo, which it's about 900 uh, miles from Havana, when transportation was almost unexistent, but Fidel Castro doesn't forgive and doesn't for, uh, forget.
0: Oscar had been sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was one of 75 political prisoners given sentences like this, in a roundup that's now known as the Black Spring of 2003. There was heavy global condemnation of these arrests and these prison terms, especially from human rights organizations. And that led to new sanctions from Europe on Cuba and a public demand from the U.S. that Oscar to be given proper medical care for his liver condition. But for Medium, it was an immensely frustrating time. In addition to his failing health, Oscar was transported back and forth across the island and she was never told before he was moved. She was constantly under surveillance by the state. The government refused to update her about Oscar's health. And then the Cuban foreign minister went on TV to say that she and Oscar were lying about how bad a shape he was in. And she knew that the conditions in which he was being held were just miserable. Were you worried that he was gonna die in prison during that time? He
3: could have died any time. It was a, a great psychological torture, what they, they had on him. But, and also physical. The government says, we don't, we, we, we don't uh, you know, we, there's no physical torture in Cuba, no? And what about his health?
0: The imprisonment and the obfuscations from the government went on for more than a year and a half. And then finally, in late November of 2004, came some good news.
3: It was on Oscar's uh, birthday. It was a coincidence.
0: Which day was that? Uh,
3: November 29, uh, 2004. They had said uh, that we could see him that day. And since Oscar's uh, mother and sister loved to take cakes, he said, yeah, you could bring him a cake. And then the night before, they called me and said, no, Miriam, no, they cannot come. Well, you said that cake and everything they had prepared. No, 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 only you. So I went to the the prison. And when I was there, they said, no, Oscar is going to be released.
0: And after one last argument with the political police... Media Minoskad were finally home.
3: And then, immediately, of course, as we've always done, it's normal, it was normal with the others that had been released. I called the, the, the foreign correspondents, and they all came here very fast. And that okay. was one of the things. The journals the, who were
0: based in Havana. Yeah, at the time. based.
3: The, the two things that the, the government didn't want the, the, the neighborhood, hmm? all the neighbors that had listened, the foreign ministers say, that we were lying and that Oscar was in, wasn't sick and that he would not be re- released because he was a mercenary, a counter he was working for the United States. This man was coming here, you know? And he was being ta- brought here by the security police, back. And the other thing was that de- they didn't want me to call so fast, you know, Oscar, to, to, to talk with a foreign correspondent. That's why they wanted to take him to-
0: With the foreign journalists? Yeah. Okay.
3: Oscar was told he could not talk, he could not write. And if he uh, did that, immediately he would be taken back to prison. So he kept on talking, he kept on writing, very peacefully, (laughs) and so did I, you know.
0: Were you continually harassed after that?
3: Well, of course, we've always been, since uh, the late 90s, the political police uh, has a, an office upstairs. I don't know how active they are now, but the apartment the is there, and 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 they have informers all over.
0: Media Oscar both kept on writing right through the transition from Fidel Castro to his brother Raul Castro as president of Cuba during which some hesitant steps towards opening the economy have been taken. Oscar acknowledged those steps while continuing to argue that an entirely new system, a more liberalized economy, was still necessary. So this this kind of isolation, all right, uh, it goes on for a little while. Um, you're still being watched by the security police. Um And I take it that this goes on for the better part of the next decade or so, and yet, (laughs) still going on, maybe? I want to talk about what happened sort of uh, in the years after that. Um, You're in this situation where Oscar's been released, you've been told that you can't voice your opinions, but the two of you go on doing that anyways... Um, I myself read something uh, that Oscar wrote in 2011 about some of the changes made uh, under Raul Castro. They were very critical. Um, So do you want to talk about uh, sort of what he thought about the Cuban economy uh, in the time since then, how his own views evolved and the kinds of things that he wrote about?
3: Well, he he, he used to uh, assess all that the government published or, or, or the plans or, or the information. And then he, he, he would be critical he, he, in the sense that he, he would show how this was impossible, that these uh, figures, figures not were, were not accurate. And he proposed what he thought that would be best for the country or even with the ideas that the government uh, was giving, how they could be improved and that and, and make them work and i know i've been told that he oscar was read by many people here in cuba even officials yes. and of course well maybe they would do the 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 the, the contrary or uh, maybe he he helped uh, i think he helped in a way to 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 open minds in cuba a lot and not only a uh, uh, you know, high-ranking officials, but also, you know, common people.
0: Yeah. It's kind of interesting. He, he once said uh, that some of the reforms that moved in the direction of liberalizing parts of the Cuban economy uh, advocated by Raul Castro, right? Limited steps, but nonetheless steps in the direction of more openness uh, were things that he got thrown in prison for saying just years earlier.
3: Yes, and, and even sometimes when uh, Murillo, the uh, vice president is in charge of the economy in Cuba, uh, has uh, informed the National Assembly or the party, uh, saying uh, mistakes or, problem or problems or what has to be solved, are things that Oscar had been saying for years and had been punished for and sent to prison for. And what I can tell you is that, uh, of course, we live in this closed society with repression, And sometimes you feel frightened, sometimes you're afraid, but uh, we always thought that what we were doing was right and that we had to to try to to help our country and our people. And besides, we we don't live uh, thinking that they're following us or listening to us or, or, or surveying, you know? Because if you do that, you cannot live in Cuba, you lose your, you know, you go crazy or go to a, a, a hospital, or, 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 or you have to leave the country. So to be here, trying to be normal, and not be, being under drugs, you know, pills, <laughs> you, you have to just think that they don't exist.
0: Do you think that his health was made permanently worse by the treatment that uh, he was given in prison?
3: Well, I think since he he was under all that all the pressure, you know, in the interrogations, in the with the conditions, with the psychological torture, with not uh, adequate uh, medicine, it, it was worsen And uh, after when he he came out of prison, Oscar could have gone abroad uh, for medical treatment, but he never did because the government said that if you leave, you cannot come back. And Oscar wanted to be here in Cuba. He thought that where he would be, his life would be useful, where he could do something good. Was here in Cuba, inside our country, and he never wanted to to leave. And when he finally uh, went f- uh, to Spain for medical treatment, it was because he knew that in Cuba it was impossible to to have any more assistance or, or them to do anything. And and we we went uh, to Madrid in March, two thousand. Uh, Thirteen, his last words, works, you know, writings, were a few days before that, and he was already in such a bad shape that he had to go on a wheelchair out of the of the airport. You know, he was when we got to the airport. Uh, he, I in had, Spain. Here in Cuba, in Cuba, I had to go for a wheelchair for for him to be able to to. To wait for the plane you know for and then when we got to to Madrid, it, it was also like that he got there. I thought he wouldn't make you know he would make it I, I thought it was you know nine years, hours uh, uh, on a plane and, and he was so f- fragile weak yeah fragile, but well, finally went, we got there and and he we, next day we were already in the hospital you know, and he was had a very good treatment but it was already too, 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 you know, impossible to save his life. And uh, I was, uh, well, of course, you cannot be glad, but in the sense that I have the comfort that first I, was, I, had, I took him out of Cuba. I didn't let Fidel Castro so, uh, make him suffer here anymore, hmm? and that he had very good uh, medical assistance there, although it was too late.
0: Oscar died in Spain later in 2013, in September. And I had one last question for Medium. So it's sort of clear uh, that your career and his were very closely intertwined. You worked alongside each other. He was an independent-minded economist. You're an independent journalist. That's kind of a rare breed in Cuba. Um, Thinking back on his life now, uh, how would you want him remembered? What would you want his legacy to be?
3: Well his legacy I wanted to be all what he uh, assessed to 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 improve in Cuba and what I really uh, think and hope for is uh, that our country changes that our society opens up that Cubans have the possibility to participate to interact to to be part of this society in general and and that we could have a a, a real better country uh, uh, with uh, conditions, uh, good living conditions for all and social justice.
0: That's the end of our chat. I really wish this story had a happier ending, but it doesn't. Miriam told me after I shut off the recorder that what she does is still really hard and that she often does still feel lonely without Oscar, but she continues to speak and write uncomfortable truths. She's critical of the Cuban government, of course, but she also argues against the U.S. embargo against Cuba, which distinguishes her from some other Cuban dissidents. And she'll acknowledge that for Cuban dissidents, at least one thing is better. Rather than getting arbitrary and long prison sentences, they're now more likely just to be detained for a few hours. The international pressure heaped on Cuba about the prison terms that it handed down in the 2000s seems to have made some difference, and it's hoped that the recent opening of relations with the United States will lead to even more. If there's another silver lining, it might be that Cuban economists now are able to be more critical about the Cuban government's policies than they were in Oscar's time, without fear of censorship, or worse, from the state. I spoke to a few such economists during my own stay in Havana. The story of Oscar and Medium isn't a big story with larger-than-life characters driving big, sweeping societal changes. It's a private story, but still I think it's a beautiful story about two people who instinctively told the truth in a country that punishes such behavior. And they were punished for it, but they kept on doing it anyways. I was really moved and inspired by my chat with Medium. I hope you were too. And now, moving on with today's show.
1: All right, Cardiff. Thanks so much. That was awesome. Now we are going to go to Arizona with Gary Silverman.
2: In an old, gritty section of Phoenix, far from the shinier, upscale, the metropolitan area, stands a warehouse nearly 1,000 square feet in size. It was once a department store, but it serves a different purpose these days. It's called the Costco Business Center, it Creates a pantry of sorts for restaurants, bakery, and food cart owners, selling items like tomato paste and wax paper in large quantities.
0: Small restaurants, the space
2: is money, and I have a thousand square feet, yeah, I know. and that's So if it. they can come in here and buy it every day, it ensures they have fresh product, and they don't have to store it. The warehouse manager is Troy Newberry, who started working at Costco when it had only one store and when he was only 18. Mr. Newberry takes me on a tour of the center and introduces me to some of his customers. What's your name? Gilberto. Gilberto? I'm Gary. I'm sorry. Meet Gilberto Diaz. He's a regular at the Costco. Mr. Diaz operates a cake decorating business in Phoenix and works for a food distribution operation and supplies bakeries, restaurants, and other food preparers in Sonora, the Mexican state due south of Arizona. Among his wares on this day is mayonnaise. It's a classic ingredient of the Sonoran hot dog, a culinary creation named after the state. Although variations on the theme are permitted, the hot dog is wrapped in bacon, grilled, buried in a pillow-like bun, and then smothered with pinto beans, grilled onions, fresh onions, and tomato. To top it off, mustard, jalapeno sauce, and mayonnaise are swirled on top in the abstract expressionist manner of Jackson Pollock. There may be no better symbol of the US-Mexican border economy than these Sonoran hot dogs. The dish is the fast food equivalent of a fugue in classical music or collage in the pictorial arts, a collision of elements that somehow works for the connoisseur. All this mixing is no accident. Millions of Arizonans and Sonorans have been moving across the border for decades, taking hot dogs from up north to Mexico and their turbocharged version of the dish back to the U.S. It also might be a sign of the times. Arizona officials are now trying to turn their entire state into a, what they call a free travel zone How for approved Mexican visitors.
3: Well, I, I try to come uh, once a month, right. but uh,
2: right now... As for I'm Gilberto Diaz, with when his the, truck is working, which it hasn't been recently, he runs right. the supplies so, to his customers uh, down there south.
3: There is mail in Mexico, but uh, right now it's cheaper here than... There is, like, uh, little carts in the corner. Right. Or
2: that they sell hot dogs, right? And they, they use a lot of them. Uh, to yeah, paraphrase yeah, the do old do the saying, only in North America.
0: And joining us in the studio is Gary Silverman, the FT's U.S. national editor, to talk about his new piece on Arizona and this free travel zone. Gary, what exactly is the free travel zone?
2: There's a travel document along the Mexican border called a border crossing card, which people can get to come in from Mexico. It was actually created in 1918 to make it easier for people who went back and forth across the border. It's a temporary thing. It lets you come in for 30 days okay. as, as it's currently set up. And in 1953, they put a 25-mile limit on it in the United States. And since then, it has been gradually expanded to 55 miles in New Mexico and 75 miles in Arizona. The Arizona change was so that people could get all the way up to Tucson. Which is the second biggest city in Arizona, about an hour from the border, and go shopping there. Basically, I didn't uh,
0: know this thing existed at all. There's actually a document that says you can go a certain length, yeah. a certain distance yeah. from the border. And if you're, I guess if you're if you're right. pulled over or something, and yeah. somebody asks you for your documents within that distance, you're good to
2: go. Yeah, you're Wait, good to go. The- so if they go beyond Tucson without getting pr- other documents, they could get in trouble. So there's a sort of in there's a border, then there's another border for shoppers. The the reason is is that There's an epic number of people who go shopping in Arizona and New Mexico and Texas. uh, From Mexico. From Mexico. In a period from 2007 and 2008, the University of Arizona studied this. There were 24 million people who crossed the border from Mexico to Arizona, typically to shop. Uh, The shopping starts off right in the border communities. You have places like Nogales, Mexico and Nogales, Arizona, which are, which is a city on either side of the border. People could really walk from one side to the other to go to Walmart or something like that. It's evolved quite a bit in recent years, in some part because a lot of US retailing has come down to Mexico. So there's Walmarts down there, so they don't really have to go to Walmart anymore. On the other hand, you also have a lot of middle class people in the, in the northern Mexico in the state of Sonora, which is next to next to Arizona. And who were well healed enough to go up to the malls and shop at Tiffany or the Apple store.
1: So this is kind of interesting given like we're in this political climate right now where like Donald Trump is calling to build a wall on the border, right? And mm. on the national level, this immigration debate is really, really heated and really nasty. But on the local level, there's this what seems like this bustling trade, right? How, what's what's going on there?
2: There are several things going on at once on a national level. People are concerned about the changing makeup of the country. They're concerned about the large number of Mexicans who come in here to work without proper documentation. They're concerned that the border could lead to the infiltration of terrorists. Down in Arizona, they're uh, looking for ways to recover from the financial crisis of the last decade.
1: They were hard hit. The uh, Arizona there.
2: was one of the ground zeroes of the property meltdown. I mean, I mean, Arizona has been growing rapidly for decades. Uh, having just come back from there, the weather is way better than in other parts of the country. It's beautiful. People want to live there, retire there, do business there. But when the housing boom ended, they had to think again. And one of the thoughts they have down there is to increase their activity with Mexico. Uh, Arizona is right next door to a very large country that has some economic growth and particularly in the northern part of Mexico, where a lot of factory production has moved and and is moving. Uh, there's also quite a bit of uh, rich agricultural land and operations in northern Mexico. And there are a lot of people who can come up to Arizona and uh, do business there, uh, both as shoppers, as tourists, um, and also to some extent in business that they're, they could just keep accentuating those ties.
0: It's such an interesting juxtaposition too, because Typically, when you think about Mexicans crossing the border into the US, Mm. you associate it with this idea of coming here for a better life, to make money, to maybe send it back home in some cases or to put down roots here. In this case, they're coming here to spend their money.
2: Right. And uh, uh, during Mexican holiday weekends, for instance, uh, Mexican shoppers in Arizona are, are well known for buying in cash. Apparently, credit card rates are very high there and cash is still king in Mexico. So when the Mexicans come, they pull out, you know, rolls of hundred dollar bills. I, actually, I was at the Apple Store at the Encantada Mall in Tucson the other day, and somebody was buying an iPhone there with a roll of crisp hundreds, you know. Uh, but it's not unusual. People say there for like most of the transactions at a given store on a Mexican holiday weekend to be settled in cash. Uh, so the Mexicans come and they have money, and and there are people also who go to school in Arizona who have apartments in Arizona. Uh, so there's quite a bit of uh, linkage.
0: Is there is there any political appetite for doing this anywhere else, or for expanding the uh, travel zone itself as it's been as it's been expanded? Well, it's, in the it, past? it was
2: done in New Mexico in 2013. There's quite a bit of feeling in Arizona that actually Texas is way, well, well ahead of them in outreach. Interestingly, too, the red state of Texas. Does a lot of trade promotion and so forth. So all these states are doing these things to some extent. In Arizona, they feel that they're they're terribly behind other places in in uh, creating ties with Mexico. A lot because of the policies of the earlier part of the dec- decade, particularly a, a law down there called SB ten seventy.
0: SB ten seventy. Ten
2: seventy. Yes. SB ten seventy. Uh, which required people to carry their immigration documents with them or it was a crime and also gave the police very broad powers to stop people who looked like they were in the country illegally, which led to a lot of claims that you know you could be stopped for looking like Mexican. Uh, the population of much of Arizona is Hispanic or Mexican. So uh, this led to a lot of bad feeling and a lot of Mexicans, one, started staying away and also, it wasn't exactly a way to recruit more people to do things. Um, that thinking has really changed quite a bit, uh, particularly under uh, new leadership down there.
1: So last question, the Sonoran hot dog. You talk about it in, in this piece. How was it?
2: A uh, so uh, filling. <laughs> uh, caloric, um, although I didn't do uh, the place, they they usually, get, you get two two of them and a Mexican Coca-Cola, which also people Excellent. drink, another sign is people down there, you get the Mexican yeah. Coca-Cola, with which real has sugar, sugar. Yeah. with real with cane sugar instead of corn syrup, but the, you typically you get two of them plus a Mexican Coca-Cola around you about six bucks in Tucson. Uh, as part of my research, I had one uh, for a lesser amount, uh, which will be billed to the FT shortly, uh, it's very good. It, it actually really works. The beans work. It's sort of a hot hot dog and beans mm-hmm. with onions and tomatoes and lots mm-hmm. of sauces on it.
1: You're a former Chicago resident. How does it compare to the Chicago hot dog style? Well,
2: I'm from New York, so hot dogs have mustard on them, you know?
1: <laughs> Anything else is something completely different.
2: But, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, so I, I got with it. It was like drinking uh, drinks with umbrellas in them when you're on vacation, you know?
1: Sounds good.
0: Gary Silverman, U.S. National Editor of the FT. Thanks for coming on Alpha yeah. Chat. Thank you. Okay, and in the final segment of the show, Shannon and I are going to talk about our favorite cultural event of the year. Shannon, I've been waiting for this for like months. Hamilton. Hamilton, okay. It's a musical. It's now on Broadway. And it is the story of the first Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, set to hip-hop and R&B. Uh, I guess we should probably explain a little bit about the history of this for our overseas Wait, let's play, listeners. Let's we play, a clip, okay, play let's, a clip first. Okay, let's do a clip first. All right, here's a clip. A new line of credit, a financial diuretic, how do you not get it? If we're regressive and competitive, the union gets a boost, you'd rather give it a sedative?
1: Okay, so we have to kind of explain, like you said, we have to explain what exactly Hamilton is. Yes. So, I mean, it's a Broadway show, and it's very much definitely a Broadway show in the Broadway tradition. A musical. It's a musical. It's sung through. so yep. If you're if you haven't listened to it totally worth check going to Spotify checking out the soundtrack because the entire show is the soundtrack yeah essentially
0: and more or less uh, understandable even without having seen the show you might not know right. who's doing the singing at any given moment but you can figure it out
1: right it, it sort of takes the that structure of a traditional Broadway musical and it kind of explodes it first of all with hip-hop um, with like just kind of amazing lyricism and and music and also with its casting
0: yeah, with the casting, it is a cast almost entirely of African-American and Latino actors, which playing is playing the
1: founding fathers of the US, which right, is Right,
0: playing the lily-white founding fathers mm-hmm. of the US including Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, etc. Um, we should probably also explain a little bit about who Alexander Hamilton was and why he was so important. He wasn't just the first sec- Treasury Secretary, he was also a revolutionary war hero. He fought in the war.
1: He was also one of the authors of the Federalist Papers. He was at the Constitutional Convention, was big, essentially one of the big architects of the Constitution.
0: Yeah, he was, he was one of the nation's founding fathers. But as the show goes on to explain, he doesn't get as much credit as the others, in part because he never held elected office. Right,
1: right? he was never president. He's probably one of the most famous people never to be president in the U.S., it's politicians never to be yeah. president in the U.S.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Um, but the show itself is a kind of... Uh, panoply of exquisite language, amazing music, and so much fun. And we should probably explain what what it is that like we primarily love about this most.
1: Well, I mean, I think so. One of the things I really sort of love about it is actually the way it's told. So Hamilton was in life was like a larger than life guy. He was somebody. I mean, he, as you said, essentially he he was an immigrant who came to the U.S. from the Caribbean, had this sort of like horrific childhood, came became a revolutionary war hero. But all you know, but, you know, when he was in his twenties, essentially became you know was involved essentially in the framing of the Constitution, became Treasury Secretary. You know, lived this kind of incredible life, but also had these epic feuds with people in his right. life. You know, had a long-standing feud with Jefferson. And the way this the show is told is the narrator is Aaron Burr, who was eventually the Vice President of the United States. Who, spoiler alert, killed him, shot and killed him
0: okay, I don't know what what a modern parallel for something like this would be. There really isn't any because no. I mean it's Dick a Cheney world. shot someone in
1: the face, but he didn't kill
0: him so it, yeah, but it' be it' would be closer to like Joe Biden shooting and killing Hank Paulson, right, right? like the current right. vice President shooting the right. secretary the treasury in a this, duel, the like- Treasury secretary <laughs> in a duel of the previous administration right. right
1: so so completely kind of insane, but then also so it's set up that Aaron Burr is the one essentially telling you Hamilton's story which itself becomes is a thematic uh you know trope that's like throughout the the show that's this whole question of who gets to write history how history is told how history is framed yes you know how personalities are created and like perpetuated and that and then that gets back into the casting this idea that you know these people these essentially were it, especially the first half of the play it's a bunch of young hot-headed guys you know fighting a war i mean they were they were essentially You know, fighting a guerrilla war for a lot of it, right? Under Washington, a lot
0: of very smart guys, geniuses, but supremely flawed as well, and that all comes out in the play.
1: And it's just, it's just like this sort of this portrait of these, you know, these young headstrong guys who were the people who we now sort of, you know, look at their portraits and they sort of they seem so serious, but at one point they were just like dudes who were fighting for an idea, and that it's presented. I don't know the way the the show presents that. You really, you like, you're really living it with them.
0: Right, speaking of Aaron Burr, played by the amazing Leslie Odoms Jr., and here's a clip of him singing about Hamilton.
2: Hamilton doesn't hesitate, he exhibits no restraint, takes and he takes and he takes, and he keeps winning anyway. Changes the game, plays and he raises the stakes. And if there's a reason, he seems to thrive, and so few survive, and goddamn
0: it, I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. Here's what I thought made it resonate so much. Okay, it's not just that the language is so gorgeously crafted and that the songs are a lot of fun, although they are. I think the musical is just incredibly insightful about human nature in general. So you look at the two character, the two main characters, and their arcs throughout the show. Hamilton essentially arrives to the U.S. with his personality fully formed. Right, he just goes for it, and his intellect—he just goes for it including in moments where he should show some restraint, and he never really does. And what's interesting about it too is his kind of obsession with sort of obvious markers of progress, which is a very immigrant thing, right? Mm -hmm. This is something I've experienced in my own family, Mm -hmm. okay? My parents were born in Cuba, all right? And all throughout my childhood, I saw that they wanted all of their kids, right? All the kids in my family had to be like bankers or doctors or lawyers, because Mm -hmm. just by saying that, there's, it was a sort of obvious marker of progress. And Hamilton throughout the show says, I want to rise above my station. I'd rather die as a martyr because at least that way I died as a somebody. If I have command of troops instead of just being a writer, then after the war, I'll be able to rise up. And that's something that gets repeated, all mm-hmm. right? But he basically stays the same throughout the show in terms of his personality, which is, I think, historically accurate, right? right. Burr's Burr is different. And you see throughout the show Okay, that he starts as this very kind of hesitant person. Well, and he's
1: much more political too. More right? I mean, political. He's, he's playing both shows sides. Shows the kind of restraint yeah. that
0: Hamilton never does. And he is sort of baffled and increasingly jealous of the fact that Hamilton can be this kind of go for it type. Right. Okay, and yet Hamilton is the one that rises up the ranks, all right, that's sort of societally accepted, that's in the quote, room where it happens, mm-hmm. all right? And then at the end, obviously, it all culminates in Burr shooting Hamilton, all right, in the, the great irony of the play, all right, the, the famous song, I'm not throwing away my shot, or the famous lyrics, right? At the very end of the play, Hamilton does throw away his shot, Burr aims true, and Hamilton ends up dying. It's amazingly well-crafted. It's amazing how it goes from one end to the other, uh, and it's just sort of miraculous all the way through.
1: So we should say it's almost impossible to get tickets. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, the show, I mean, the show has been a huge success. It's likely to be taken to other cities. So if yeah. it comes to your city, you should definitely see it. In the meantime, definitely check out the soundtrack on Spotify or on iTunes or wherever you get your music. Um, I think we both uh, full throatedly endorse it. Yes,
0: indeed.
4: Welcome back, Carter.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you, but it's my turn to introduce you because this is the this is the follow up segment. No,
4: we took over when you were away. <laughs> didn't you notice?
0: I did notice, and you did an awesome job uh at doing exactly that. I'm glad you let me back in the door last week's
4: episode. What'd you think i uh thought last week's episode actually had a lot of common themes throughout the whole uh of the three segments, and so we had I know you've said we won't talk about the Fed, but we had Eric Platt elucidating on all the possibilities uh, after the rate rise, and I thought he was really clear in a way that some others we've had on over the year (laughs) might not have been uh, about all the implications. Who shall
0: remain nameless. Yes,
4: and I also was fascinated by the middle class paradox that uh, was covered by Sam Fleming and Sean Donnan in their examination of the shrinking middle class Partly because of this notion that they explained very well of, uh, you know, the American dream, the ambition to rise up into the 1% means that there are fewer people in the middle and then all the people that are being left behind. Yeah. And I thought uh, that juxtaposition of the realisation for some people of the dream, of the American dream, means that for a whole bunch of others, their their opportunities or lack of are uh, in stark you know, uh, grayness. I suppose
0: it's a great series, and the product of a lot of engrossing work that they've been working on for probably months.
4: Mm, 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 yeah, mm. I love
1: the profiles of the, of the individual people. I mean, they got such an interesting like group
4: cross group. I exactly, guess. cross engineering and IT <laughs> yeah. and shop workers and.
0: That's because they've been hearing Amelia Mahasa talk about how she <laughs> insists on having a human element to every story. People, and they who were listening, and so they included it. Yes.
4: Fabra <laughs> Streisand's my right. favorite. Uh, and then we had Claudia Golden about the gender pay gap, which my old hobby horse. Mm-hmm. Um, I was intrigued about her notion that there is a cost to providing flexibility in the work- workplace. Um, so because I'm, that doesn't that exacerbate the gap that's, that was, but you spoke to her at length. What did you think?
0: Yeah, there's, there's a lot more, there's a lot more to her position than that. I think it's not that she's against flexibility. It's that she thinks companies need to arrive at the decision to provide flexibility on their own and to do so, they're going to need to change the nature of the jobs that they provide, right? Right and that uh, these jobs with what she calls non-linearities, right? In other words, where if you work twice as long as somebody, you get paid way more than twice as much, that those jobs are the ones that are exacerbating the pay gap and that those companies need to realize that if they want more women to work for them and they want a wider pool of women available to become those companies' leaders, they actually do need to make those jobs more flexible, but that it's very difficult to enforce that flexibility through policy, I think is her is her, and position. so then is
4: the cost borne by the company or the employer rather than the penalty being on the worker is that
0: I, I I think that to frame it in terms of there only being costs is probably a little bit simplistic, right? The whole point of this is that there are also benefits in that you have access to a much wider pool of people by making these jobs more attractive to women so but but that's something that I mean we could talk about this forever. Mm. really recommend everybody to listen to. Alpha chatterbox the entire fifty minute uh, conversation with Claudia, which was great. I have a follow up segment since Ooh, I've been gone. I see. Uh, You've come I back. Wanna, exactly. I, wanna, no, I will add one <laughs> thing to what Eric said about the Fed because I thought he was really clear. You know, he's great on on radio, but his main point of emphasis was that it's only a quarter point, so it might not be a big deal, right? That could turn out to be right, but just for the sake of balance here let's also acknowledge that that quarter point rise also signals something about the Fed's preferences. And to the extent that the market and economic actors interpret that to be about the Fed's preferences, that actually could still have an effect. So it could turn out to be a big deal, right? It might be a low probability, but there's the potential for that to be still a mistake. So anyways, thought we should bring that up. And so I think that's something to note the next time we talk about the Fed, which I dearly hope Isn't for some time.
4: Oh, you know it's going to be every (laughs) week for the next 52 weeks.
0: It stalks me everywhere I go. Amelia Mahasek, always a pleasure. Thank you, Carter. Thanks,
4: Shannon. Thank you.
0: Amelia, what are you reading?
4: So I've been reading a lot of year-end and year-ahead-themed pieces, mainly in my area of work, online news. And two things uh, have come across my desk. Henry Blodgett's uh, Business Insider to quote a rival uh, year ahead, themes year ahead for media, and Amy Webb also along the same lines. She's a sort of futurist, I suppose. And uh, what I found really interesting is uh, everybody is talking about chat apps. That's the chat apps. Chat apps. So WhatsApp, Snapchat. So media seems to be particularly obsessed with... Chat apps at the moment. One of the things I wondered is how do you tell your story on Snapchat if you're a media organization? You know, in, in the sense that the ones that I've seen that are really effective are an image, a picture with a caption, you know, a single word caption in some cases. And, and obviously, people, because so much attention is being paid to them, people are devoting a lot of time thinking about that. My recommendation
0: is something that you can only find on YouTube. Okay, it is Chimes at Midnight. This is the Orson Welles directed and starred in movie uh, that's a compression of the Henry IV plays by Shakespeare. Everybody's now big into Macbeth because, you the know, Michael Fassbender, Fassbender and Cotillard, okay? But this is easily my favorite representation of Shakespeare on the big screen. And Wells as Falstaff is my favorite representation of a Shakespearean character on the screen. He doesn't play him as the kind of buffoonish character that you often see him as on the stage. He plays him as a kind of shrewd and smart and clever and sad character, which is the character that I read in the original plays themselves. Go check it out. It's really fantastic.
1: My recommendation is about this guy.
2: Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting
1: Wait, what was that? So, I am w- going to recommend a book called Lafayette in the Somewhat United States by Sarah Vowell, um, who is an author and a contributor to This American Life, and she writes sort of. Fun pop histories, cultural histories, Um, and it is about uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, who plays a big role in Hamilton and played a big role in the American Revolution, and it's a pretty fascinating guy. I highly recommend everyone go and read it. It's also just a quick, fun holiday read.
0: And that's all the time we have for today's show, Shannon. It is awesome to be back here and hosting this with you. But to be honest. I haven't flexed my podcast hosting muscle in a while, and I'm exhausted. So why don't you close us
1: out? All right. You go lay down, Carter. <laughs> it's good to have you back. You can go to ft.com slash alpha chat for show notes, links, and our guests' recommendations. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think the biggest economic story of 2015 was? What are you looking forward to in 2016? What do you want us to cover? You can call us, 917-551-5012. You can email us at chat at ft.com or tweet us. I'm Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L, and Cardiff is at Cardiff Garcia. One last thing. We want to ask your opinion. Go to ft.com slash alpha survey and fill out a few questions. We will make better podcasts that include what you want to hear.
0: Amy Keen consistently saves the day around here. She's who you want to call if you need someone to get your cat out of a tree or an emergency appendectomy or whatever, okay? But you can't call her when she's producing our show because she's ours. Amy, thanks so much for everything, and thanks to our listeners. We will be back for one final show of the year next week. Thanks for listening to Alpha Chat. It's been such a fun year.